Volume 1, Chapter 6 of Marius the Epicurean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Patter. Chapter 6 Euphuism. So the famous story composed itself in the memory of Marius, with an expression changed in some ways from the original, and on the whole graver. The petulant boyish Cupid of Apuleius was become more like that lord of terrible aspect, who stood at Dante's bedside and wept, or had at least grown to the manly earnestness of the Eros of Praxiteles. Set in relief amid the coarser matter of the book, this episode of Cupid and Psyche served to combine many lines of meditation, already familiar to Marius, into the ideal of a perfect imaginative love, centred upon a type of beauty entirely flawless and clean, an ideal which never wholly faded from his thoughts, though he valued it at various times in different degrees. The human body, in its beauty, as the highest potency of all the beauty of material objects, seemed to him just then to be matter no longer, but having taken celestial fire, to assert itself as indeed the true, though visible, soul or spirit in things. In contrast with that ideal, in all the pure brilliancy, and, as it were, in the happy light of youth and morning and the springtide, men's actual loves, with which at many points the book brings one into close contact, might appear to him, like the general tenor of their lives, to be somewhat mean and sordid. The hiddenness of perfect things, a shrinking mysticism, a sentiment of diffidence, like that expressed in Psyche's so tremulous hope, concerning the child to be born of the husband she has never yet seen. In the face of this little child at the least shall I apprehend thine. In hoc saltem parvulo, cognoscam faciem tuam. The fatality which seems to haunt any signal beauty, whether moral or physical, as if it were in itself something illicit and isolating. The suspicion and hatred it so often excites in the vulgar, these were some of the impressions, forming, as they do, a constant tradition of somewhat cynical pagan experience, from Medusa and Helen downwards, which the old story enforced on him. A book, like a person, has its fortunes with one, is lucky or unlucky in the precise moment of its falling in our way, and often, by some happy accident, counts with us for something more than its independent value. The metamorphoses of Apuleius, coming to Marius just then, figured for him as indeed the golden book. He felt a sort of personal gratitude to its writer, and saw in it doubtless far more than was really there for any other reader. It occupied always a peculiar place in his remembrance, never quite losing its power in frequent return to it for the revival of that first glowing impression. Its effect upon the elder youth was a more practical one. It stimulated the literary ambition, already so strong a motive with him, by a signal example of success, and made him more than ever an ardent, 
indefatigable student of words, of the means or instrument of the literary art. The secrets of utterance, of expression itself, of that through which alone any intellectual or spiritual power within one can actually take effect upon others, to overawe or charm them to one side, presented themselves to this ambitious lad in immediate connection with that desire for predominance, for the satisfaction of which another might have relied on the acquisition and display of brilliant military qualities. In him a fine instinctive sentiment of the exact value and power of words was connate with the eager longing for sway over his fellows. He saw himself already a gallant and effective leader, innovating or conservative as occasion might require, in the rehabilitation of the mother tongue, then fallen so tarnished and languid. Yet the sole object, as he mused within himself, of the only sort of patriotic feeling proper or possible for one born of slaves. The popular speech was gradually departing from the form and rule of literary language, a language always and increasingly artificial. While the learned dialect was yearly becoming more and more barbarously pedantic, the colloquial idiom, on the other hand, offered a thousand chance-tossed gems of racy or picturesque expression, rejected, or at least ungathered, by what claimed to be classical Latin. The time was coming when neither the pedants nor the people would really understand Cicero, though there were some indeed, like this new writer Apuleius, who, departing from the custom of writing in Greek, which had been a fashionable affectation among the sprightlier wits since the days of Hadrian, had written in the vernacular. The literary programme which Flavian had already designed for himself would be a work then partly conservative or reactionary in its dealing with the instrument of the literary art, partly popular and revolutionary, asserting, so to term them, the rights of the proletariat of speech. More than fifty years before, the younger Pliny, himself an effective witness for the delicate power of the Latin tongue, had said, I am one of those who admire the ancients, yet I do not, like some others, underrate certain instances of genius which our own times afford. For it is not true that nature, as if weary and defeat, no longer produces what is admirable. And he, Flavian, would prove himself the true master of the opportunity thus indicated. In his eagerness for a not too distant fame, he dreamt over all that, as the young Caesar may have dreamt of campaigns. Others might brutalise or neglect the native speech, that true open field for charm and sway over men. He would make of it a serious study, weighing the precise power of every phrase and word, as though it were precious metal, disentangling the later associations, and going back to the original and native sense of each restoring to full significance all its wealth of latent figurative expression, reviving or replacing its outworn or tarnished images. Latin literature and the Latin tongue were dying of routine and languor, and what was necessary first of all was to re-establish the natural and direct relationship between thought and expression, between the sensation and the term, and restore to words their primitive power. 
for words, after all, words manipulated with all his delicate force, were to be the apparatus of a war for himself. To be forcibly impressed, in the first place, and in the next, to find the means of making visible to others, that which was vividly apparent, delightful, of lively interest to himself, to the exclusion of all that was but middling, tame, or only half true even to him, this scrupulousness of literary art actually awoke in Flavian, for the first time, a sort of chivalrous conscience. What care for style, what patience of execution, what research for the significant tones of ancient idiom, sonantia verba et antiqua, what stately and regular word-building, gravis et decora constructio, he felt the whole meaning of the sceptical Pliny's somewhat melancholy advice to one of his friends, that he should seek in literature deliverance from mortality. Ut studiis sae literarum a mortalitate vindicet. And there was everything in the nature and the training of Marius to make him a full participator in the hopes of such a new literary school, with Flavian for its leader in the refinements of that curious spirit, in its horror of profanities, its fastidious sense of a correctness in external form, there was something which ministered to the old ritual interest still surviving in him, as if here, indeed, were involved a kind of sacred service to the mother tongue. Here, then, was the theory of euphuism, as manifested in every age in which the literary conscience has been awakened to forgotten duties towards language, towards the instrument of expression. In fact, it does but modify a little the principles of all effective expression at all times. Tis art's function to conceal itself, ars est celare artem, is a saying which, exaggerated by inexact quotation, has perhaps been oftenest and most confidently quoted by those who have had little literary or other art to conceal, and from the very beginning of professional literature, the labour of the file, a labour in the case of Plato, for instance, or Virgil, like that of the oldest of goldsmiths, as described by Apuleius, enriching the work by far more than the weight of precious metal it removed, has always had its function, Sometimes, doubtless, as in later examples of it, this Roman euphuism, determined at any cost to attain beauty in writing, es calos graphen, might lapse into its characteristic fopperies or mannerisms, into the defects of its qualities in truth, not wholly unpleasing perhaps, or at least excusable, when looked at as but the toys, so Cicero calls them, the strictly congenial and appropriate toys, of an assiduously cultivated age, which could not help being polite, critical, self-conscious. The mere love of novelty also had, of course, its part there, as with the euphuism of the Elizabethan age, and of the modern French romanticists. Its neologie were the ground of one of the favourite charges against it, though indeed, as regards these tricks of taste also, there is nothing new, but a quaint family likeness, rather, between the euphuists of successive ages. Here, as elsewhere, the power of fashion, as it is called, is but one minor form, slight enough it may be, yet distinctly symptomatic, 
of that deeper yearning of the human nature towards ideal perfection, which is a continuous force in it. And since in this direction, too, human nature is limited, such fashions must necessarily reproduce themselves. Among other resemblances to later growths of euphuism, its archaisms on the one hand and its neologies on the other, the euphuism of the days of Marcus Aurelius had in the composition of verse its fancy for the refrain. It was a snatch from a popular chorus, something he had heard sounding all over the town of Pisa one April night, one of the first bland and summer-like nights of the year, that Flavian had chosen for the refrain of a poem he was then pondering, the Perwigilium Veneris, the vigil or nocturne of Venus. Certain elderly councillors, filling what may be thought a constant part in the little tragicomedy which literature and its votaries are playing in all ages, would ask, suspecting some affectation or unreality in that minute culture of form, cannot those who have a thing to say, say it directly? Why not be simple and broad like the old writers of Greece? and this challenge had at least the effect of setting his thoughts at work on the intellectual situation, as it lay between the children of the present and those earliest masters. Certainly the most wonderful, the unique point about the Greek genius, in literature as in everything else, was the entire absence of imitation in its productions. How had the burden of precedent laid upon every artist increased since then? It was all around one that smoothly built world of old classical taste, an accomplished fact, with overwhelming authority on every detail of the conduct of one's work. With no fardle on its own back, yet so imperious towards those who came labouring after it, Hellas, in its early freshness, looked as distant from him even then as it does from ourselves. There might seem to be no place left for novelty or originality place only for a patient and infinite faultlessness. On this question, too, Flavian passed through a world of curious art casuistries, of self-tormenting at the threshold of his work. Was poetic beauty a thing ever one and the same, a type absolute, or, changing always with the soul of time itself, did it depend upon the taste, the peculiar trick of apprehension, the fashion, as we say, of each successive age. Might one recover that old, earlier sense of it, that earlier manner, in a masterly effort to recall all the complexities of the life, moral and intellectual, of the earlier age to which it had belonged? Had there been really bad ages in art or literature? Were all ages, even those earliest adventurous matutinal days, in themselves equally poetical or unpoetical, and poetry, the literary beauty, the poetic ideal, always but a borrowed light upon men's actual life. Homer had said, Hoid hote de limenos, polubentheos entos hikonto, histia men stelanto, tesan den nei melaine, Ek decai autoi bainon epiregmini thalases. And how poetic the simple incident seemed, told just thus. Homer was always telling things after this manner. 
and one might think there had been no effort in it, that here was but the almost mechanical transcript of a time, naturally, intrinsically poetic, a time in which one could hardly have spoken at all without ideal effect, or the sailors pulled down their boat without making a picture in the great style against the sky charged with marvels. Must not the mere prose of an age, itself thus ideal, have counted for more than half of Homer's poetry? Or might the closer student discover, even here, even in Homer, the really mediatorial function of the poet, as between the reader and the actual matter of his experience, the poet waiting, so to speak, in an age which had felt itself trite and commonplace enough, on his opportunity for the touch of golden alchemy, or at least for the pleasantly lighted side of things themselves. Might not another, in one's own prosaic and used-up time, so uneventful as it had been through the long reign of these quiet Antonines, in like manner discover his ideal by a due waiting upon it? Would not a future generation, looking back upon this, under the power of the enchanted distance fallacy, find it ideal to view, in contrast with its own languor, the languor that for some reason, concerning which Augustine will one day have his view, seemed to haunt men always. Had Homer, even, appeared unreal and affected in his poetic flight to some of the people of his own age, as seemed to happen with every new literature in turn? In any case, the intellectual conditions of early Greece had been how different from these! and a true literary tact would accept that difference in forming the primary conception of the literary function at a later time. Perhaps the utmost one could get by conscious effort, in the way of a reaction or return to the conditions of an earlier and fresher age, would be but novitas, artificial artlessness, naivete, and this quality too might have its measure of euphuistic charm, direct and sensible enough, though it must count, in comparison with that genuine early Greek newness at the beginning, not as the freshness of the open fields, but only of a bunch of field-flowers in a heated room. There was meantime all this, on one side the old pagan culture, for us but a fragment, for him an accomplished yet present fact, still a living, united, organic whole, in the entirety of its art, its thought, its religions, its sagacious forms of polity, that so weighty authority it exercised on every point, being in reality only the measure of its charm for every one. On the other side, the actual world, in all its eager self-assertion, with Flavian himself in his boundless animation, there at the centre of the situation. From the natural defects, from the pettiness of his euphuism, his assiduous cultivation of manner, he was saved by the consciousness that he had a matter to present, very real, at least to him. That preoccupation of the dilettante, with what might seem mere details of form, after all, did but serve the purpose of bringing to the surface, sincerely and in their integrity, certain strong personal intuitions, a certain vision or apprehension of things as really being, with important results, thus rather than thus. 
intuitions which the artistic or literary faculty was called upon to follow with the exactness of wax or clay, clothing the model within. Flavian, too, with his fine clear mastery of the practically effective, had early laid hold of the principle as axiomatic in literature, that to know when oneself is interested is the first condition of interesting other people. It was a principle the forcible apprehension of which made him jealous and fastidious in the selection of his intellectual food, often listless while others read or gazed diligently, never pretending to be moved out of mere complacence to other people's emotions. It served to foster in him a very scrupulous literary sincerity with himself, and it was this uncompromising demand for a matter in all art derived immediately from lively personal intuition, this constant appeal to individual judgment, which saved his euphuism, even at its weakest, from lapsing into mere artifice. Was the magnificent exordium of Lucretius, addressed to the goddess Venus, the work of his earlier manhood, and designed originally to open an argument less persistently sombre than that protest against the whole pagan heaven which actually follows it. It is certainly the most typical expression of a mood, still incident to the young poet, as a thing peculiar to his youth, when he feels the sentimental current setting forcibly along his veins, and so much as a matter of purely physical excitement, that he can hardly distinguish it from the animation of external nature, the upswelling of the seed in the earth, and of the sap through the trees. Flavian, to whom, again, as to his later euphuistic kinsman, old mythology seemed as full of untried, unexpressed motives and interest as human life itself, had long been occupied with a kind of mystic hymn to the vernal principle of life in things, a composition shaping itself, little by little, out of a thousand dim perceptions, into singularly definite form, definite and firm as fine art in metal, thought Marius, for which, as I said, he had caught his refrain from the lips of the young men singing because they could not help it in the streets of Pisa. And as oftenest happens also, with natures of genuinely poetic quality, those piecemeal beginnings came suddenly to harmonious completeness among the fortunate incidents, the physical heat and light, of one singularly happy day. It was one of the first hot days of March, the sacred day, on which from Pisa, as from many another harbour on the Mediterranean, the ship of Isis went to sea, and every one walked down to the shore-side to witness the freighting of the vessel, its launching and final abandonment among the waves, as an object really devoted to the great goddess, that new rival or double of ancient Venus, and like her a favourite patroness of sailors. On the evening next before, all the world had been abroad to view the illumination of the river, the stately lines of building being wreathed with hundreds of many-coloured lamps. The young men had poured forth their chorus. Crasamet qui nunc quamavit, qui quamavit crasamet, as they bore their torches through the yielding crowd, or rowed their lanterned boats up and down the stream till far into the night, when heavy raindrops had driven the last lingerers home. 
Morning broke, however, smiling and serene, and the long procession started betimes. The river, curving slightly, with the smoothly paved streets on either side, between its low marble parapet and the fair dwelling-houses, formed the main highway of the city, and the pageant, accompanied throughout by innumerable lanterns and wax tapers, took its course up one of these streets, crossing the water by a bridge upstream, and down the other, to the haven, every possible standing-place, out of doors and within, being crowded with sightseers, of whom Marius was one of the most eager, deeply interested in finding the spectacle much as Apuleius had described it in his famous book. At the head of the procession the master of ceremonies, quietly waving back the assistants, made way for a number of women, scattering perfumes. They were succeeded by a company of musicians, piping and twanging, on instruments the strangest Marius had ever beheld, the notes of a hymn, narrating the first origin of this votive rite to a choir of youths, who marched behind them, singing it. The tire-women and other personal attendants of the great goddess came next, bearing the instruments of their ministry, and various articles from the sacred wardrobe, wrought of the most precious material, some of them with long ivory combs, plying their hands in wild yet graceful concert of movement as they went, in devout mimicry of the toilet. Placed in their rear were the mirror-bearers of the goddess, carrying large mirrors of beaten brass or silver, turned in such a way as to reflect to the great body of worshippers who followed the face of the mysterious image as it moved on its way, and their faces to it, as though they were in fact advancing to meet the heavenly visitor. They comprehended a multitude of both sexes and of all ages, already initiated into the divine secret, clad in fair linen, the females veiled, the males with shining tonsures, and every one carrying a sistrum, the richer sort of silver, a few very dainty persons of fine gold, rattling the reeds with a noise like the jargon of innumerable birds and insects awakened from torpor and abroad in the spring sun. Then, borne upon a kind of platform, came the goddess herself, undulating above the heads of the multitude, as the bearers walked, in mystic robe embroidered with the moon and stars, bordered gracefully with a fringe of real fruit and flowers, and with a glittering crown upon the head. The train of the procession consisted of the priests in long white vestments, close from head to foot, distributed into various groups, each bearing, exposed aloft, one of the sacred symbols of Isis, the corn-fan, the golden asp, the ivory hand of equity, and among them the votive ship itself, carved and gilt, and adorned bravely with flags flying. Last of all walked the high priest, the people kneeling as he passed to kiss his hand, in which were those well-remembered roses. Marius followed with the rest to the harbour, where the mystic ship, lowered from the shoulders of the priest, was loaded with as much as it could carry of the rich spices and other costly gifts, offered in great profusion by the worshippers, and thus, launched at last upon the water, left the shore, crossing the harbour bar, in the wake of a much stouter vessel than itself, with a crew of white-robed mariners, whose function it was, at the appointed moment, finally to desert it upon the open sea. 
The remainder of the day was spent by most in parties on the water. Flavian and Marius sailed further than they had ever done before to a wild spot on the bay, the traditional site of a little Greek colony, which, having had its eager, stirring life at the time when Etruria was still a power in Italy, had perished in the age of the civil wars. In the absolute transparency of the air on this gracious day, an infinitude of detail from sea and shore reached the eye with sparkling clearness as the two lads sped rapidly over the waves. Flavian at work suddenly, from time to time, with his tablets. They reached land at last. The coral fishers had spread their nets on the sands, with a tumble-down of quaint, many-hued treasures, below a little shrine of Venus, fluttering and gay with the scarves and napkins and gilded shells which these people had offered to the image. Flavian and Marius sat down under the shadow of a mass of grey rock or ruin, where the sea-gate of the Greek town had been, and talked of life in those old Greek colonies. Of this place all that remained, besides those rude stones, was a handful of silver coins, each with a head of pure and archaic beauty, though a little cruel, perhaps, supposed to represent the siren Ligeia, whose tomb was formerly shown here. Only these, and an ancient song, the very strain which Flavian had recovered in those last months. They were records which spoke, certainly, of the charm of life within those walls. How strong must have been the tide of men's existence in that little republican town! So small that this circle of grey stones, of service now only by the moisture they gathered for the blue-flowering gentians among them, had been the line of its rampart an epitome of all that was liveliest, most animated and adventurous in the old Greek people of which it was an offshoot, it had enhanced the effect of these gifts by concentration within narrow limits. The band of devoted youth, Hiera Neotes, of the younger brothers, devoted to the gods and whatever luck the gods might afford, because there was no room for them at home, went forth bearing the sacred flame from the mother hearth, itself a flame of power to consume the whole material of existence in clear light and heat, with no smouldering residue. The life of those vanished townsmen, so brilliant and revolutionary, applying so abundantly the personal qualities which alone just then Marius seemed to value, associated itself with the actual figure of his companion, standing there before him, his face enthusiastic with the sudden thought of all that, and struck him vividly as precisely the fitting opportunity for a nature like his, so hungry for control, for ascendancy over men. Marius noticed also, however, as high spirits flagged at last, on the way home through the heavy dew of the evening, more than physical fatigue in Flavian, who seemed to find no refreshment in the coolness. There had been something feverish, perhaps, and like the beginning of sickness, about his almost forced gaiety, in this sudden spasm of spring, and by the evening of the next day he was lying with a burning spot on his forehead, stricken, as was thought from the first, by the terrible new disease. End of chapter 6